0: Well, good morning. Awesome. My name is Steve Blummer. I'm the pastor of family and adults here at Hope Chapel. And I'm excited about finishing up a two-part series that I started last week called God's Love Never Fails. And this week, this summer is really going to be a different. We're going to have uh, different speakers. We're going to have different worship leaders. And that's because Neil is gone for a study leave. Him and Christina are off in Europe right now. Uh, but we are encouraging you to each and every week to make it here that we feel like even though it's going to be not normal and it's going to be a different speaker, different worship leader, that you will walk away here blessed. And as a speaker, I can tell you that it's more exciting when the seats are filled. So be here for them, if not just for you as well. But last week, we presented this question that if God's love is so great, if God's good is so amazing, then why does it seem so small in me? And we began to answer that question that maybe we haven't taken enough time to really think about how good God really is in our lives. The challenge was to spend at least five solid minutes thinking about all the stuff that God has given you and to think about how good God has been to you in your past and in your present, to really think about how good God has been to you. And uh, so with that, the idea is that we can spend more time thinking about how good God is and then it ought to seem larger with inside of us. The question that we're going to have this morning is that if God's goodness is so large and if God's love is so great, then why does it look so small to the world? Last week, we saw that how good God is to us that in that He provides, He protects, He guides, He comforts. He's always with us. He fights for us. He rescues us. He blesses us. He's able to even take the not-so-good things and make them into good things. And, and even last week, we didn't get to God's greatest expression of love, and that's when he sent his one and only son to die for our sins. So the question is, can we truly understand how good God is to us if we don't understand the seriousness of our sin? I think if we understand the seriousness of our sin, then we'll understand how good and how great God really is. We kind of have to back up in the beginning in the book of Genesis. God creates the world, and he says that everything is good. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, we have Adam and Eve who were naked, but they did not feel any shame. And shame is brought about by a feeling of guilt, and guilt is brought about by a feeling that you've done something wrong. There was nothing done wrong. There was no guilt. There was no shame because they were doing exactly what God had commanded them to do. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, we have Eve beginning to listen to the tempting of Satan. And so Adam and Eve did exactly what God told them not to do. and that They were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did so, God warned them that this would bring upon them death. God created this rule not to control them. He created this rule because he loved them. He wanted to protect them from harm. And this death It didn't come immediately on Adam and Eve. They didn't drop dead right there. That's because this death was more than just a physical death. This death was something that happened spiritually, emotionally, and even relationally. This kind of death brought on pain and loss and trouble. It didn't take very long for sin to begin to dominate over humanity. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, we have one of the sons of Adam and Eve killing his brother. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, we have God looking at his creation and seeing how wicked mankind was. He saw that every intention and every thought of man was only to do evil, and so he thought that he would just get rid of his entire creation. It doesn't take long for us to realize that we're sinful people living in a sinful world among other sinful people. Job, in Job chapter 14, verse 1, says, man who is born of a woman... They live a few days and it's full of trouble. Trouble is his one-word summary of life. One of the smartest men to ever live, Solomon, in Ecclesiastes 2.17 says, Therefore, I hated life because of the work that's done under the sun. It's so distressing to me. Everything is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. King David cries out in Psalm 88, My eyes, they grow dim through sorrow every day. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. And he ends Psalm 88 simply, darkness is my only friend. How many of us have been there where these guys have been? We understand the gravity of sin and what it has done to this world. The apostle John writes in John eleven thirty-five 35, that Jesus wept. Even Jesus began to cry when he saw all the sorrow and all the trouble and the sadness, the life-consuming power that Satan and man's sin had on what God originally said was good. It's this sin, it's our sin, that destroys our relationship with a holy and perfect God. It's because of our sin that every time we try to do something good, it's never good enough to make up even one ounce of imperfection. It's because of our sin that none of us are righteous before God. None of us are righteous. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we are living in sin, we are dead in our trespassions and sin, and that means that every attempt that we try to do good, it's not good enough to free us from this sin. It's not good enough to free us from this justice that God has, rightfully so, against sin. And so really left to ourselves in our sinless, sinful state, there is no hope. There's no hope for us to break us from this death, this death of spiritual, physical, emotional, and relational decay. But that's when we hear that God came and provided a substitute, a perfect lamb that took away our sins on our behalf. It's God who so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's God who demonstrated His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Those of us who are saved were saved by grace. Grace is something that we do not deserve. Grace is something we did not earn. God has given us this grace by faith. It's the gift of God. God did not give up on you. God did not wait for you to try to get your act together because it's never going to happen. God paid the ultimate sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. He paid it in full so that we can have a restored relationship with him. And that is what love is all about. And that love was a tremendous sacrifice. We shouldn't think that this is something small, or we just say, hey, thanks, God, or like it's some kind of story, some fantasy. Even Jesus Christ, before he was crucified on the cross, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew the weight that this burden he was about ready to bear. And Scripture says that he told his disciples, as he fell on his face to pray three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told them that he became deeply distressed, and that his soul will swallow it up in sorrow. This is the Son of God. This is God himself who was swallowed up in sorrow. He even prayed to the Father in heaven that if it was possible that he would take this cup, this experience, this divine appointment, and he would allow it not to happen. He would let it pass. But he knew that that was impossible. And so Jesus Christ humbled himself and went up on the cross and died for the sins of the world. Like how Paul says it in Colossians 2.14, that God erased the certificate of our debt with all of its obligations, that thing that was opposed to us, that thing that was against us. He took that and he nailed it to the cross. It was God who showed his love to us. God is good to us all the time. And God displayed his ultimate showing of love when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. All of that should make not God small in us. It should make it large so that it overflows all over the place. Because a love like that, it changed the world. It changed the world. And when you have accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you know that it changed your life. You are a new creation in Christ. And so what we have to do is we have to begin to exercise that truth out. We have to work hard on trying to be more and more like him. And we live each and every day in the joy of our salvation. So I think the question is, if God's love is so amazing, then why does it seem so small to the world? I think there's a few reasons for that. If you would, I'd like to invite you to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the chair. You'll find that on page 816. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verse 13 and following. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt shall lose its taste... How can it made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus gives us two illustrations or two comparisons for us. One's the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The context in which this passage is found is what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest recorded message of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He begins this sermon by giving kind of eight characteristics or eight steps in order to find happiness, those that are blessed. And these eight characteristics or steps aren't exactly what we may Uh, give advice to someone when they say, how do you find happiness in life? Such as you need to be poor in spirit. You need to mourn, be gentle, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be merciful, pure in heart. Be peacemakers and be willing to be persecuted for righteousness. And that's Jesus' point in this entire sermon is that he's going... Countercultural. He's flipping things upside down. He's raising the bar and saying, if you want to be blessed, if you want to know what happiness is, it's living a life really for the God who loves you. It's living your life in a distinctive manner that's different than those that are around you. And so it's in that context that Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. See, salt, when it's added into something, it begins to make a difference. It makes a change where it is. For example, if you add salt to food, it can draw out the flavors in the food. It can also add a little bit of flavor to the food when it's used in proper levels. Salt can be a disinfectant and healing to the body. And in proper levels, it's good for your body. Salt, God commanded to be added to the Old Testament sacrifices. The basic use for this was that it was to draw out the blood from the meat sacrifices so that it would make it pure but it would also preserve the meat so that the priest can eat their portion later on. And salt was also added to the grain offering. And that's because the salt became a symbol that the sacrifice was a pure sacrifice and that the sacrifice was a sacrifice that was intended to endure. And so salt also in the culture became a symbol of trust. It was used in exchange when people were creating contracts and treaties among one another. Salt had significance importance. It added value to the situation. And I like this illustration. I'm, I'm praying that it works this morning. We know that salt, when it's added to water, allows water to conduct electricity. It allows a light to shine. And so what I have here is I have a battery with a couple wires connected to it that feed up into a light bulb. And from the light bulb, there's a, a, a couple of wires that go into a glass of water. Kids, do not try this at home. (laughs) Please seek parental guidance. Parents, don't try this at home. Anyway, so I'm praying that this works. What we we find out is that water by itself does not conduct electricity. Water by itself does not conduct electricity. Put the both wires in here, nothing happens. Salt by itself does not conduct electricity. If we stuck the wires into the salt, we would find out, Nothing happened. What has to happen is that the salt needs to be in the water. Put a healthy dose in there. We mix it around so it's dissolved. Some of you aren't praying hard enough. Praying this works. may touch them together. It's going. It's going. The point <clears throat> the point is, trust me, it works. And it may, it may turn on eventually. We'll add a little more salt. All right. I don't want to touch them together. That'd be cheating. But I do want to show you that it does work. Alright, I'm cheating to make my point, right? All right. It does work. There it goes. It's going. It's going. Yes. All right. So here's the point. Here's the point to all this. Water by itself doesn't conduct electricity. Salt by itself doesn't conduct electricity. But salt, when it's added to water, it's, it's allowed to move around and carries the electricity from wire to wire in order for the light to shine. We who are believers in Christ, we are essential vessels to carry the good news to the world. We are the ones that can make a difference in the world. We're the ones that can bring healing to the world. But what we have to do is we have to be in the water. We have to be willing to be out in the world. Romans chapter 10 says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him and whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher or someone to proclaim the message? How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. Aren't we grateful that there was people in our lives who were bold and courageous to tell us about the gospel? To tell us about how good God is? I think one of the reasons why God's love is so small to the world is because we're not telling them about how good God is and about how great his love is. People need to hear some good news these days. They need believers who can report about how good God is and how God has changed their lives. We need believers to be involved where sinners are at rather than expecting somehow the sinners are going to come to us. We need to be unashamed to allow our light to shine. We need to put our light out there so that everyone can see it. Sometimes what we want to do is we want to just keep our light kind of on the down and low. And really what Jesus is saying is that you light a lamp and you put it under a basket. But in the context of this passage, a basket is actually a bowl that you would use to put out the fire. And so he says, why would you light a lamp and then put it under a place where you're going to put it out? If you're going to light a light, you're going to put it out so everyone can see it. And what we do is we try to keep it down and low, and we begin to kind of put a lid on it. When we put a lid on our light, all we do is breathe the same gas that we put out. And when you breathe the same air in, your light eventually dims and goes out. What God is saying is say, take the lid off and let your light shine bright so that everyone can see it. Get it out there in the open so the oxygen can get it some fire to let it burn. You need to put it out there. Stop trying to put a lid on it. Stop trying to kind of keep it low. We need to be concerned with reaching the lost for Christ. We need to reach the world and to be concerned with them rather than just ourselves. Jesus tells the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. We know the story as the prodigal son. And he says in Luke chapter 15, What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, do you not leave the 99 in an open field? You're willing to leave the 99 in a dangerous situation to go after the one lost. You go after the lost one until you find it. And when you have found it, you joyfully put it on your shoulders. So when you reach someone for Christ, you carry them along in their beginning journey until they are fully engaged into the body of Christ. And coming home, you call your neighbors and your friends and you say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who don't need repentance I think part of the reason that we get together as a congregation is to, one, yes, worship our Lord, but we come together to spur one another on towards good deeds. We spur one another on to go out and to tell other people about the good news of Jesus. And we come together and we begin to celebrate with one another when someone has begun to accept Jesus Christ. We celebrate when one another makes a decision to be baptized. And part of the reason that we get together together to study the Bible is so that we ourselves can be better equipped to go out and be the church, to make a difference in our community. I think for many of us, we're really good at being salt, but we need to work harder at being salt of the earth, being actually in the water. I think one another reasons why the love of God is so small in the world is because we, as believers, were not very salty. See, when there's not a big difference between the salt and the other minerals floating around, it can't make an impact. And Jesus warns us that we can lose our saltiness. And when that happens, the world's going to walk all over you. The world's going to say, look at you. You used to be all about God, but look at you now. You're just like one of us. God doesn't make a difference in your life. When I was in college, I worked as a co-manager at a supermarket. And as the co-manager, I worked the weekends, the night shifts, the holidays, all those fun, fun shifts. Um, and I would work so every Sunday. And what I would do is I would go to church, eat lunch, and then I would go off to work. I would go in and relieve the manager that was on duty. He would tell me how the day was going. And, you know, every Sunday he would say it got really busy around lunchtime. And he'd begin to tell me some stories that happened that day. Nearly every Sunday, he would begin to tell me how these church people would come in. And they were so mean and so complaining. You know, they didn't have their favorite chocolate ice cream that they came in to get, and that's what they wanted. They were so mean and so rude. And I would begin to try to defend Christianity and say, well, you know, the the pastor must have preached for a really long time, and people were getting hungry. They needed something to eat or You know, maybe the the pastor was preaching a message that they really didn't want to hear. Instead of, you know, stepping on their toes, he completely squashed their toes. I don't know. I was trying to make excuses up, and I just felt like I was saying, this is not what Christianity is about. At least that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I think that's the thing that we hear most common about church people, that it's just a bunch of hypocrites. The thing is that we know that we're hypocrites. That's why we're here. We know that we, we need Jesus. And so what Paul encouraged us to do is this idea of putting off and putting on. Because of Christ, when we accept his gift of salvation, we're a new creation in Christ. We're no longer dead in our sins, but we're now made alive through him. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we haven't quite worked out becoming servants of Christ. We need to be working hard on putting off the old way of living and putting on the new way of living through Christ. I kind of think about it as a pair of underwear, if you will. You don't take a new pair of underwear and put it on top of the old pair of dirty underwear, right? And maybe that's how we should think about sin, that it's just disgusting and dirty. And so we got to get the dirty pair of underwear off so we can put the new pair of underwear on. God's love should start causing us to live our lives differently. Our lives should look different than they were before we met Christ. Our lives should look different than those that are in the world. We're not called to be normal. We're called to be weird by the world's standards. I think one of the reasons why we begin to lose our saltiness is because we are concerning ourselves with the same thing that the world concerns itself with. We're concerned with earthly things and earthly gain. We concern ourselves with what every other person may think about us. And I think we need to be sensitive to what the world thinks about Christianity so that we can better represent Christ to the world, but many of the decisions that we make is purely based upon what other people may think. We don't take a big stand for Jesus because we don't want to upset the cart in the workplace or with our friends or even in our family. We try hard to actually mix in really well. We're so dissolved into the world that we begin to lose our saltiness. We're not able to make a difference. We worry and stress and fear and fret just like those who don't have hope. We fight for power, for pleasure, for social status just like those who don't know that there's more to life than what's here and what's now. Salt can't be effective. It can't make a difference when it begins to lose the ability to be salt. You and I are called to be living sacrifices, giving up what we want for what God wants. We're called not to be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, constantly thinking, how can we be better servants for Christ? So that way we know what the good and perfect and will of God is. We're called to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. God knows exactly the things that we need before we even ask him. I mean, how quickly do we forget how good God is to us anyways? Jesus illustrates this point exactly in Matthew chapter 18. He tells a story. There's a servant who owed his master 10,000 talents. Now, one talent is worth 16 years of labor. This guy owed 10,000 talents. That's worth 160,000 years of labor. It's impossible for this guy to pay off his debt. No matter what he do, he could not pay it off in full. And so he pleads before his master, and his master forgives him of the entire thing. What the master did for him changed his life. He forgave him of everything. So the fellow servant goes out. He finds another servant who owes him about 100 denarii, which is about three months' worth of labor. Small compared to what he owed. And this servant couldn't pay back what the first servant, what he owed him. So the first servant takes the second servant and throws him into prison until he can pay back the 100 denarii. Word gets back to the master. The master is Furious. He can't believe what the first servant did. So he takes hold of the first servant, throws him into prison, and reinstates his old debt until he can pay it off. Jesus is making this comparison for us. How easily do we forget what God has done for us? How easily we forget that God has forgiven us. We forget how much he loves us and how much mercy and grace he has shown to us. So why is it? that those of us who have experienced those things, why are we sometimes the most crude and rude and jealous and judgmental people? We so quickly forget that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We forget that just as the world is, so were some of us. We fail to communicate how good God's love is. We somehow expect sinners to act like saints before they can enter into the church building. I think we need to be more like Jesus, where people made fun of Jesus and said, look at that Hope Chapel. They welcome sinners in there. They hang out with them, and they even go out to dinner with them. That Hope Chapel. I think one of the last reason, perhaps, why we begin to lose our saltiness is because there hasn't been a real change in us. Some of us are very good about looking nice on the outside, but maybe we're hollow on the inside because we still don't have Jesus. Maybe we truly haven't become a follower and a disciple of Jesus. Jesus tells kind of this really haunting story in Matthew chapter 12 in verse 43. It says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. And returning, it finds the house vacant swept and put in order. Then it goes off and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, the man's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this evil generation. The people whom Jesus is talking about, they were good at looking righteous on the outside, but they weren't really righteous, especially when no one was looking around. They knew what the right thing to tell other people to do, but they themselves weren't even trying to live up to that standard. They were clean on the outside, but the depth of the righteousness was only skin deep. What Jesus is implying in this story is that they failed to fill up the inside with so much good that they wouldn't have much room for the evil to be in. The solution was to fill it with Christ and to invite God to truly live within them. The solution for us is to remain in Christ, to abide in him, to be connected to the vine, to continually be connected to him, and to allow Christ to rule every aspect of our life. And so it's not crazy to think that maybe there's a few people this morning that we're doing a really good job looking like a Christian, but maybe we really aren't. And so maybe there hasn't been a time in your life where you fully recognize that you were a sinner and that you couldn't deal with your sin, that you needed Jesus. Maybe there wasn't a time in your life when you said, I wanted to run away from my sin. I don't want this type of lifestyle. I want to run towards God. I want to live my life for him. And there wasn't a time where you asked God to forgive you of your sins, and you freely gave your life over to him. It's also not crazy to think that there's some here this morning that we've, really began to lose our saltiness. Our light is really, really dim. And I want us to understand how much the world needs us to tell them about the good news of God, the good news of the gospel. The world needs us to be where they are at and to welcome sinners. Maybe there's some things in our life that we just need to get before God and deal with so that we're better servants of Christ, so we can go out and to tell the world about God's love. We need to let our light shine bright, so that when people see us, they see God's love is not small in us, it's very big. We need to show the world that God has truly made a difference in our lives. We need to lift God high, we need to talk about God when we can, We need to walk the way God wants us to walk. We need to uh, spend our time and our resources that reflect that we value God and we think he's important in our lives. When we ask the question, why is God's love so small in us? Why is it so small to the world? You know, it's not because God isn't good. It's not because God's love is not great. And in the end, the world may completely not want to believe that God's good. They may completely reject God. God's love in spite of what he's done and in spite of our efforts, but let's make sure that we who are followers of Christ, that we remain in God's love and that we're the best salt and the best light that God wants us to be. Make sure that we're the best salt of the earth and the light to the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We got to think last week about how good you are to us and how you're always there for us, you always provide for us, you always fight for us. You demonstrate your love and that you take care of our sin on our behalf. God, you are so good. And Allow us to constantly think about how good you are to us. The thing is that it doesn't stop there. It needs to go on. We need to be involved in telling other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. God, I ask this morning that you would help us to be better servants, that you would help us to be salty, and that you would help us to be in the world, but not of the world. Help us to know that we need to be involved where sinners are at, but we don't need to act like them. We need to live in a distinctive way. God, if there are some of those here this morning who have never, never asked you to forgive them of their sins, they never made a statement in their heart that they believe that you did die for their sins, they never confess with their mouth that they want to give their lives over to you, that they would do so this morning and that we want to rejoice with them and challenge us to be willing to leave the 99 and go after the one that is lost. We ask for your, your help, your grace and mercy in doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.